You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Peace be with you. Also with you. My name is James Fields. It's so good to be with you guys as we look at this text today and continue in our series in the Gospel of Matthew, looking at Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 36. Fire, floods, and quakes. Already this year, natural disasters have wreaked havoc in Australia, Indonesia, Puerto Rico, and even here in America. Just this past week, tornadoes have left the surrounding city of the city of Nashville, Tennessee, in ravishes. And I want to encourage us as a church to not to overlook these things that are happening in the world, but to take time to pray for those families who have been devastated by such travesties. Already this year, unexpected deaths have taken their toll. Within our own church alone, we've experienced at least six deaths that I know of within the first few months of 2020. Unexpected deaths are not just local. In the last three months of this year, there have been numerous deaths of celebrities even in the world of Hollywood. Katherine Johnson, James Lipton, Lynn Cohen, David Olney, Don Larson, Nick Gordon, Buck Henry, Kirk Douglas, and Amy Hardwick, just to name a few. Just yesterday, the first recorded incidence of COVID-19, better known as a coronavirus, has made its unwelcomed entrance into our own region. Here in the beautiful bluegrass state, as well as our neighboring state of Indiana. Here's the question I want to ask us this morning. What should our response be to such calamity? How should we as Christians respond to such tragedy? And where can we find hope in the midst of such affliction and so much despair? And I think our answer is in the text today. And what I want you to think of as we go forward is think of these two words. Fear not. Fear not. Would you pray with me? Father, we do love you, and we do praise you for you are a good God and good king. Father, we come to you acknowledging that we are fearful people. We have a tendency of being fearful in in a real sense, and rightfully so. This world is is a broken world. Father, I pray that you would remind us of the great truth of your word, that you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Father, I pray that you help us to see and recognize the great chasm that exists between fear and faith and help us, Lord, to know how to navigate, keeping our eyes fixed upon you, the author and finisher of our faith. As always, Lord, I ask Take my little, make much of it. Glorify yourself as only you can through the preaching of your word. 
Let some mind be transformed. Let some soul be saved for the advancement of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Fear not. There are four prompts that I want us to walk through today about fear not. And those prompts are actually found in your program there. The first one is found in this way. Fear not when you're frustrated with God. Fear not when you're frustrated with God. Look with me in verses 22 to 26 to see what we're talking about. It says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up to the mountain to pray by himself. Well into the night, he was there alone. Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from the land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. And Jesus came toward them walking on the sea very early in the morning. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Notice with me, if you have uh, the scripture in your program or if you like writing in your Bible, circle that word made. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. Circle that word made. Because that word made can be translated into many different forms. Here are some examples. It could easily say that he made them get into the boat. He compelled them. He constrained them. Or even that he insisted that they get into the boat. You see, the definition of the Greek word used here is this. It's to force, to compel, or to constrain, or to urge, or to necessitate the going of somewhere. This is best seen in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. Hear these words from John 6. It says, When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, This truly is the prophet who's come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Now, you got to remember what's going on here. Jesus had just performed a miraculous miracle. He just fed 5,000 people with very limited supply. And he decides to disappear within the hillside by himself and disperse the crowd that he had just gathered and just had amazed. But here's the question, why? Why would Jesus do this? I think John 6 tells us. It says that Jesus knew that the people were planning to compel him to be their king. The people weren't going to ask Jesus. They weren't going to try to convince Jesus. They were going to make Jesus their king. That makes us think, Jesus, isn't that why you came? You came to show us that you're king. Why not allow them to do what you've come to do? You see, Jesus, he's working miracles. He's preaching about the kingdom of God. Now he is even miraculously fed this crowd in the wilderness, and they're thinking, uh-oh, it's here. The kingdom has finally come. This is the true Messiah. And they're ready to make him their king. But notice that Jesus' response is different than our own. <laughs> I don't know about you, but when people are telling me how good I am or how good I look or how good I'm preaching— I tend to get a little big-headed, amen? You kind of think about yourself a little differently. He said, hey, my my sermon did that to you? Praise God. 
praise God, but also a little bit praise me. You see, you can trust God for three reasons. One is this, because God, Jesus is sovereign. He is sovereign. And Jesus had a right understanding of kingship. Notice what one commentator says about John 16. It says, he says this, he says, the effect of the miracle on the multitude was so great in John 16, 14, that they believed him to be that prophet which would come into the world. That is the Messiah, the king that they had expected. And they were about to take him by force and make him a king. To avoid this, Jesus got away from them as privately as possible, and he went into a solitary mountain alone. See, as great as this opportunity was for Jesus, he rightly discerned that this was not God's will for his life. Notice, Jesus' response is different than our own. His response to fame and notoriety, his response to success is not self-absorption, but it's isolation and solitude with his father. To all my introverts who are in the congregation, there's hope for you. Because even Jesus himself enjoys his alone time, amen? Amen, I heard that little guy. Since he made, compelled, or insisted that the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds, showing this, showing that the show is now over. And then he goes to proceed to pray by himself to the Father. I don't know if you've ever experienced God like this, but I have in my life. Where God does things in your life that it just doesn't make sense. It seems like one plus one should equal two, but one plus one is actually equal, equal zero. And you're wondering why. And the reason why is because Jesus is sovereign. See, Jesus rightly discerns God's will for his life. And he understands this. He understands that he came into the world to bless those in need, not to break those in power, at least not yet. He came to heal the sick, not to build himself a throne apart from his own suffering. He came to suffer and to die. He came to rescue people from their bondage of sin, not to be praised as a miracle worker. He came to be crucified and for his body to be raised from an empty tomb, not to be joyfully carried on the shoulders of the crowd. This brings into the fact of the temptation that Jesus is experiencing. Oh, yes, Jesus experienced temptation. And one is even right here. You see, the temptation is simply this, that Satan was tempting Jesus to receive the kingdom of God without suffering as the true king. Jesus is facing the same temptation that was offered to him in Matthew 4 to become king without having to suffer, to be praised without having to die. In other words, to be exalted as king apart from God's redemptive plan. And you know, we also have similar temptations in our life, don't we? When Satan tempts us with these questions, can I trust God? Does God really know what he's doing in my life? And if God is truly sovereign, why are things so hard in my life? If that's you this morning, I invite you to recall the words of David in Psalms 23, verse 1, that simply says this. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I want or I have what I need. 
Not only can you trust God because he is Jesus because he's sovereign, you can also trust Jesus because Jesus is sovereign over you. Look with me in verses 22 and also 24. It says this, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Verse 24, meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Notice that Jesus here sent the disciples away around 9 p.m., 8 or 9 p.m., frustrated. They're confused and they're irritated. And notice what Jesus' response is to their frustration. He prays well into the night. Jesus willingly submits to his Father's will by being alone with the Father, and he isolates himself in prayer. And in view of the temptation, when human honors are offered to him and almost forced upon him, he retired for private prayer. This is an example for us all who are tempted with human honor and applause. See, nothing is better to keep the mind humble and, um, and unambitious than to seek some lonely place, to shut out all the world with all its honors, to realize the great God before whom all creatures and all honors sink to nothing is around about us and ask him to keep us from pride and vainglory. This is also from the previously quoted uh, commentator on this passage. Look with me in verse 25. It says this. It says, Jesus came to them walking on the sea very early in the morning. So Jesus sends them out around 9 p.m. He sends them out. It says go. He compels them. He makes them. He insists that they get into the boat and go because he knows what's in their heart, that they're going to try to exalt him without suffering. So he makes them go and pushes them off to the sea. Now, if I'm the, if I'm the disciples, I'm wondering... Okay, Jesus, I'll get in this boat, but man, where's your vehicle? <laughs> How are you going to meet up with us, Jesus? Are you going to walk? Where's your boat? Text doesn't tell us that there's a boat, and there's a reason why. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he came towards them early in the morning. Early in the morning, uh, in, in this time, the fourth watch is normally around 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. And this is what that picture could have looked like or should have looked like. At that time, for the Sea of Galilee, their, their, their travel uh, on that sea. It's about eight, the, the Sea of Galilee is about eight miles in width. And there's an image I want to show you that helps us to see kind of their direction going across that, that, that lake or that sea. Okay, no problem. Uh, needless to say, we don't know how long the disciples were battling the wind and the waves. But it had to be been at least for six to seven hours. Maybe even up to nine hours of struggle that the disciples were facing. And notice the disciples are struggling with something that they should have known how to handle. At least a third of them are fishermen. And they know about the waters. And they know about how to navigate on a boat. This reminds us that admittedly... <laughs> One of the most frustrating things in life is to struggle with something that is known or, or something that is known or something that is familiar. We've seen through Jesus' encounter with his family at Nazareth and also King Herod's beheading of John the Baptist that familiarity can be a hindrance for intimacy with God. 
But now this, but now last week and also this week, we see that the feeding of the 5,000 and this incident of Jesus walking on water and forcing his disciples out can, mean, can help us understand that unfamiliarity can also be a catalyst for intimacy with God. Don't be afraid. And don't bemoan being in an unfamiliar place with God. Especially when God is the one who's told you to go in that certain direction. Notice how Jesus responds. He prays for them in the midst of their struggle. So get the picture with me. It's 9 p.m. The people want to get Jesus. They want to they honor him and exalt him as king. They're, they're willing to do it by force, not even without asking him. But the first thing Jesus responds is saying, you, my disciples, get into the boat and go. Get away from here. I don't need you here. Go across the sea. I will meet you at some point. They go across the sea. Jesus dismisses the crowds. As they go out into the sea, they hit a storm. And in the midst of their storm and in the midst of their struggle, Jesus is on the mountain praying for them. You see, Jesus is familiar with our weaknesses. I love how Hebrews put it. Hebrews 4.19 says it this way. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12.9. Paul pleaded with God to remove an infirmity from his life, but hear what, hear what God's response in verse 9. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Not only is God familiar, Jesus familiar with our weaknesses, but Jesus is committed to working all things for our good and for, all, for his glory. Romans 8.28 says it this way. It says this, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And it's a good reminder for us this morning that God knows what he's doing. Amen? He knows what he's doing. He knows why he's doing it. And God knows it, especially when you don't. It's a good reminder that you can trust God when you don't understand. You can trust God when you can't comprehend. You can trust God when you simply don't, don't know the direction that he's taking you within your life. You can trust God. Love how Psalm 23 verses 2 and 3 says it this way. It says, he lets me down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Not only can you trust God because he's sovereign, you can also trust God because he's sovereign over the storm. Look with me in verses 25 and 26. It says, Jesus came towards them early in the morning. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Notice three realities concerning the storm. First one is this. Notice Jesus' commission that Jesus sends them out despite their frustration. He knows they're upset. He knows they're frustrated. But what he wants them to understand, that this was not about the storm, it's about the Savior. 
And Jesus knew about the storm, but guess what? They didn't know about Jesus. There are some storms that God brings in your life not to destroy you, but to help you understand and reveal the character, the nature of the person of God. There are some storms in your life that you personally would not know the goodness of God if you had not gone within it. So Jesus commissions them. He sends them despite their frustration, despite them not wanting to go. Despite them thinking and knowing that they know what's best, Jesus sends them. But not only did he send them, he also came to them despite their fears. Notice with me, Jesus in verse 25, he came towards them walking on the sea very early in the morning. Jesus came to them despite their fears. And notice this, he addressed their fears, but not the storm. Listen to what Jesus says to them in verse 27. He says, have courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus tells them not to fear because he was now with them. He was now in their presence. Not only did Jesus commission them despite their frustrations, not only did Jesus come to them despite their fears, he comforted them despite the fracas. I had to get another word for the storm, so I got fracas. Thanks, thank you, uh, thesaurus.com. That was awesome. He commissioned them despite their frustration. He came to them despite their fears, and he comforted them despite the fracas. He didn't stop the storm. Notice this. He just simply appeared within it. I love this. This is a great preaching point. I'm put down. I really want to land here for a minute because think about this. Any parent knows what this looks like. You don't even have to be a parent. Any child, anyone who's been a child knows what this looks like. This is like a thunderstorm coming into your city or coming into your town at an unexpected time in the middle of the night. And you as a child wake up startled, confused, and afraid. And you know the one thing that child wants to do? That child wants to find comfort. That child wants to find someone or something to provide comfort in the midst of the storm. So what does that child do? That child normally gets up screaming and yelling, amen, and interrupting your good night's sleep, your beauty sleep, to come in between you and your spouse or come into your room and snuggle with you. This is an illustration, or it can be, can be compared to a child running to a parent in the middle of the night during a thunderstorm. You see, the storm continues. The storm continues on, but the child's position, the child's perspective, and the child's propensity is different because they're near you and they're with you. The storm is still going on. Every single boom and every single raindrop and every single thing being turned, on, turned upside down outside by the wind is still going on. But because their perspective has changed, everything is okay. Everything is all right. You see, the storm was too much for them. But the storm is never too much for Jesus. This is a good reminder. Listen to me. If you don't hear anything else I say, listen to this one point. Please stop asking God to stop the storm. Stop asking God to stop the storm and simply ask and invite him to show up within it. God, I need you. 
And even if you don't allow the storm to pass, even if you don't allow the, the, the fracas in my life to, to, to subside or to, to subdue, I need you. Reminds me of Psalm 23, 4. Beautiful psalm that says this, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no danger or I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. Stop asking for the storm to stop. Stop asking for the, for the trials to end and just ask Jesus to be with me in the midst of it. Be with me, Lord. Draw near to me. I need you next to me, comforting me. Even if you say nothing to the storm, be with me because I need you. Even more so than the storm to cease. The greatest blessing that God gives us in the midst of the storm is himself. And the lie and the temptation that the enemy often gives us is that the greatest blessing he can give you is for the storm to stop. But as I said earlier, there are some storms in your life that has shown you, that has drawn you closer together as husband and wife, that has shown you the character, the goodness, the nature of God. There are some storms in your life that you wouldn't know God's healing power if you didn't go through it, if you didn't get that diagnosis. If you didn't have that financial problem, you wouldn't know God is a provider that you know he is to be right now. If things weren't jacked up at work and you're frustrated and you're ready to quit and leave, you wouldn't know God is your provider. Stop asking God to stop the storm and just simply ask him to be with you in the midst of it. And that's what Jesus offers him. He says, listen, I'm walking to you. Notice Jesus comes to him in the middle of the night. I wish you could see this picture because it's, it's really cool looking and very artistic. I'm not very artistic, but I thought it was artistic. So I was like, hey, they might think I'm artistic, but you don't think that because you can't see it, but that's okay. I digress. In the middle of my storm, Lord, be with me, right? I got to preach to myself right now. <laughs> God is with us in the middle of the storm. He's, oh, there it is. <laughs> now, do you see why they would say that's a ghost? Or that's a, right? You see that? No lights, nothing. And you see this glowing figure coming towards you. It's like, I don't want that near me. Take it away. Notice that Jesus comes to them despite the storm and also despite their fears. It reminds me of Romans 8. It's a long passage of scripture, but it's worth us reading this morning. Romans 8 says it best. Romans 8, 31 through 39. Listen to words of Paul here. He says it very plainly. He says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is or who can be against us? He who didn't even spare his own son, but offered him up for us. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But even more, he has been raised. He's also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword? As it is written, because you are, um, we are being put to death all day long, we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, 
nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So fear not. Fear not not only when you're frustrated with God, but also fear not when you fail God. Look with me in verses 24 and 27. Verse 24 says this, Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from the land, battered by the waves because the wind was against them. Verse 27, Immediately Jesus spoke to them, Have courage, it is I, do not be afraid. You see, the Sea of Galilee is about eight miles in width. And it's been estimated that right now in the middle of the storm, they're approximately about three to four miles away from the shore. Now, that's important to note because, listen, it's too late for them to turn back. It's probably, again, in the middle of the night. It's too late for them to come back. They can't get help anywhere else. But yet Jesus sends them this way. I don't know about you, but I... I thought about it this week. I said, man, can you imagine the conversations on board of that boat (laughs) and their frustration? Can you imagine the conversations with the disciples we're having? I can hear them saying things like this. Who does Jesus think that he is? He isn't really the Messiah. He can't be the Messiah. Why did he send us this way? Does he know what he's doing? If Jesus knew this ahead of time, why did he send us this way? I can hear someone else saying, We just witnessed Jesus feed a crowd of 5,000 people. Why can't he save us now? Where is Jesus? Think think that these are rightful questions because these are not questions that probably were said on the boat. This is also questions that are said in our own private private meditation and the only private, private reflection in our own hearts and souls. You see, Jesus has rejected their desire to make him king. He forced them away into a boat with little direction, and they are following his instructions, and halfway along, they get stuck in the storm. Brothers and sisters, this is a model for us. This is a model for us of the life of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because the reality is this, is that the reality of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is that it's beautiful, but it's also causes us and asks us to have imperfect faith. It's the combination of God's power and also of human weakness. And if you feel like you have little faith in God, if you feel like you're failing and uh, falling and flailing and sinking, this is normal. It's a normal part of, of walking the Christian walk. And this is what it means to be human, to taste and see God's goodness and then quickly forget about it and doubt. Why should they not fear? Because Jesus is present with them. Notice this, that Jesus used this storm as a pathway to a greater revelation of himself. And here's the reality. Either you're headed towards a storm, you're in the middle of a storm, or you're coming out of a storm. All of us have to experience the storms in our lives. But this is a good reminder for us to thank God for the storms. Because it's in the middle of the storm where the presence of Christ becomes all the more real for you. Thank God for the storm. Notice how Jesus introduces himself in verse 27. He says this, 
have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Jesus introduced himself by saying, have courage, it is I, circle that or underline that if you can, don't be afraid. Now, as this figure comes walking across the water in the middle of their frustration and distress, the very last person they expect to see is Jesus. It's dark, it's in the middle of the night, on a large body of water with the wind blowing against them. And of course, they naturally freak out. As I just showed you that picture of Jesus walking across the water, they assumed it was a ghost. Or maybe it's the devil coming to get us. Or maybe it's one of the demons coming to get revenge. But notice what Jesus says to them. He says this this key phrase in verse 27. It is I. It is I. And this word in the Greek is a word that has been translated from a similar word that God used of himself in Exodus 3.14, where he reveals himself to Moses as I am who I am. Ego e me. It's the emphatic pronoun commonly used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament where God is the speaker. And here, Jesus comes to them in the middle of their frustration. He comes to them in the middle of their storm, and he he calms them with not just the words of comfort, but he also calms them with the words that he is God. And he says, I am who I am. It is I. And this is a good reminder for us to know that God loves to save his people. He's with us, and because he's with us, we have no reason to fear in this way. There are people, there is a type of person who does need to fear God. You know who that person is? It's the one who seems to have everything all together. And they seem to be successful at everything. And apparently they never struggle because these people are connected to reality. They aren't aware of their own souls. And the result is that when they face difficulties and trials in this life, even though they're aware of their, even, even they aren't aware of their own imperfect faith and they can lose it all. It's a good reminder for us that Jesus loves to save his people. But here's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Do you want to be saved by Jesus? Not, not, not your parents, not alone. Not your education, not your skill, not your trade, not your abilities. Do you want to be saved by Jesus? Jesus loves to save his people, but do you want to be saved by him? Do you love to be saved by him? Do you love to put yourself in a vulnerable position so that Jesus can draw near to you in your time of need? Or do you like the disciples in the boat, struggle for seven to nine hours without calling out Jesus one time. Notice in the text, Jesus came to them without them calling out to Jesus. Don't be stubborn like the disciples in their frustration. Don't allow your frustrations with God to allow you to be silent before God. Call out to him. God, save me. I need you to do this. No one else can do it. And if you don't do it, it won't be done. I need you. My husband is great. My kids are great. My job is good. But there's nothing like being saved by you. 
Abra, I need you. I need you. Fear not when you're frustrated with God. Fear, fear not when you fail God. And also fear not when you have little faith in God. Look with me in verses 28 through 31. It says, Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came towards Jesus. And when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You see, Jesus is not only sovereign over you, but Jesus also is your strength. Notice how Jesus responds to him. He says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Is Jesus condemning Peter? Is Jesus condemning Peter here? <laughs> Maybe. I was thinking about this question. I was thinking about, man, what kind of memes, uh, if we could put up memes to show uh, faces of disappointment, what, kind, what would Jesus' face look like? Or how do you envision Jesus' face during this moment? Here are some, some quick thoughts that I I conjured up off the great internet, the World Wide Web. Maybe they won't come up. Oh, is it there? Oh, sorry. I didn't, I can't see it on the screen. That's my favorite. How about this one? You can't see it. It's Thanos. Reality is often disappointing. I love that one. My sons love that one too. You see, Jesus' words were accompanied with his outstretched arm. And I believe that they were said with joy and also love and maybe a little laughter. Yes, Jesus did laugh as a friend and as a brother. I don't believe Jesus looked at him and said, you a little faith, why did you doubt? I think he's looking at him like, bro, what are you, what are you doing? Come on, let me help you up. Remember this. Remember this thought. We've said it many times. It's a good reminder that our vision of God determines our pursuit of God. Our vision of God, how we determine and how we envision Jesus' response to Peter is often how we would envision Jesus' response to our own failures, our own lack of faith. Jesus is not condemning Peter's faith. This is not a measure of Peter's faith. Our faith is not something that we create on our own or apart from God. And here's three reasons why. Peter's response to him says this, if you are the son of God, starting in verse 28, he says, Lord, if it's you or if you are, this word, this, this translation here is not just saying if you are, but it's saying since you are. And what Peter is saying is this, since I see you to be the son of God, call me out and let me come to you. Peter had faith. But not only did Peter have faith in Jesus, Peter had enough faith to compel him to get out the boat. And Peter actually walks on water. As much as we demean and as much as we talk about our brother Peter, this is a place where he actually succeeded. He walks on water. Who else can say that in this room? I don't think anybody can say that. Under the power and authority of Jesus, and the command of Jesus and the invitation to, of Jesus, he actually walks on water. And besides Jesus, there's no other human can, can put that on their resume. Notice also Peter's faith. That Peter gets close enough to Jesus 
that Jesus can reach out and grab him. And notice this. <laughs> he was closer to Jesus than he was to the boat. He didn't call out to the disciples and say, hey, guys, pull me up. Peter made some headway. I don't know how far Jesus was from the boat. He may be from where I am to the front pew. But he, Peter walked close enough to Jesus. He had faith enough in Jesus in the moment to get close enough to him that he called out to Jesus to save him and not those in the boat. It's a good reminder for us that our faith will be consistent because Jesus is consistent. Hebrews 12, 2 puts it this way. It says, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I love this because it reminds us what faith is and what faith isn't. Faith isn't the measure of, the, the measure of one faith. It's not the measure of one's faith, but the object of it. It's not the amount of faith that you have, but where you're looking to solidify your faith. It's not having unlimited faith in God, but limiting our faith exclusively in God. Hebrews 11.1 1 says it best. It says, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for. It is a proof of what is not yet seen. And this is a good reminder for us that a person's faith is always connected to an objective reality. Notice what it says. Now faith is the reality for what is hoped for. It is the assurance of what is hoped for. It is the substance of what is hoped for. Faith is the proof of what is not seen, is the conviction of what is not seen, and it is the evidence of what is not seen. The best illustration that I can think of is a pregnant woman. Because in pregnancy, you have two things that exhibit your faith. You have expectation and you have evidence. What's the expectation? Well, she has a reality what is hoped for because she starts nesting. If you've ever been around a woman who is pregnant, some of our, our women in our, in our congregation, they're about to give birth. I'm so excited for that. But guess what, ladies? I'm going to get out your way. Because when you get in this mode of what they call nesting, it's a real deal. It's a real deal. And husbands, all you need to do is walk behind your wife with, with, a, with a hammer and some nails and with some things. Or if she's really good with hammer and nails, you just help her in whatever way she wants to do it. But the nesting phase is real. And what is she doing? She's doing that out of expectation. She's preparing the room. She's preparing the home. She's moving things around because she, although she doesn't have her baby, she has an expectation for it. And she's preparing for it. And faith requires you to do the same thing. If you have faith, it means that you have an expectation for something to happen. Even though you don't see it, even though you don't have it, I am preparing and I have an expectation that this will come to fruition. Not only is it an expectation, it's also evidence. It's evidence of the baby bump that she has, that she's carrying around. It's the evidence or the proof of what is not yet seen. She's hoping and expectation. She's preparing the room and she's preparing the home while she's still pregnant and she still can't see it. It's a beautiful reality that God gives us this thing called faith. You can't have faith if you don't have expectation. You can't. You can't have faith if you don't have evidence. And as Christians, the greatest evidence that God has given us is his son, Jesus, and his pierced, arm, his pierced hands and his pierced feet. And the empty tomb that proves and solidifies the reality of our salvation. You remember, 
Our vision of God determines our pursuit of God. And as we see God in this way, and as we pursue him in this way, we will, we will pursue him with acts of faith. See, so your faith is only strong as its object. When Peter experiences the strength of the wind, he forgets, although temporarily, he forgets about the strength of Jesus. So we see that when Jesus says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? He's saying, Not did, why did you doubt in, in lack of faith? Peter had faith. He says, why did you doubt me? I'm with you. I'm here. And I'm greater than the storm. And if you don't see this storm affecting me, then this storm does not have to affect you. Fear not when you're frustrated with God. Fear not when you fail God. Fear not when you have little faith in God. And lastly, fear not when you forget who God is. I love this because in verse 33, they simply respond this. It says, when they got into the, verse 32 and 33, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. Notice this, that this is the first time the disciples recognize him as such. Jesus uh, has been called the Son of God by his Father at the baptism when, when God spoke from heaven. He had even been affirmed as being the Son of God by demons. But this is the first time in all of the Gospel of Matthew where the disciples actually revealed Jesus as being the Son of God. And guess what it took for them to understand that? It took a storm. It took for them to be in an unfamiliar place to look to Jesus for their salvation. In this small text here, we see the relationship between belief and worship. And once you recognize who Jesus is, you realize how he is to be worshiped. Remember, our view of God determines our pursuit of God. And as you come to know Jesus through his word, we too should respond in adoration and of praise of the one true and holy God, the great I am. Earlier, I proposed this question to you. I said, we have to ask ourselves this question, can I trust God? But the reality is this. The reality is not, can I trust God? But the reality is this, can God trust me? And what I mean by that is, can God trust me to be his witness despite the fears of life? Can God trust me to worship him as the son of God, even in the middle of the storm? I love uh, this week, I was praying through this scripture, and my favorite aunt, um, her name is Aunt Carol. She passed away about eight, nine years ago. But her daughter posted something online about that great psalm that I mentioned earlier, Psalm 23. And in Psalm 23, she said it was her favorite psalm because it addressed every single need that a person would have. And this is that, this is that quote, or this is that thing that she looks at. And if you're struggling today, which many of us are, I want you to know that God is your provision and that he is your provider. I want you to know that you can trust God's plan despite your frustrations with him, despite you not knowing or not understanding. I want you to know that you can trust God's process despite your failure, despite your lack of faith, and you can trust God's provision despite our lack of faith in him. We pray with me. Father, we do thank you. And we ask that your word will go forth and I come back void. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen. We take the time now to look at the communion table, to signify our dependence and to renew our trust in Jesus as our sovereign God and King. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and gave thanks and said to them, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for, the, for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. As we come and as we take this meal and we partake, we're not just partaking of bread and juice. It's much more than that. We're signifying our alliance to Jesus as being our great God and the one who causes us not to fear despite the many fears that life presents us, that he is our hope and he is our God. I invite you to come when you're ready. If you don't know Christ or if you have not accepted him as savior of your life, I, I invite you not to come, but to hear the words that are spoken over you and sung over you. If you want to know who Jesus is or talk about who this God is, please come talk to myself, Pastor Nick, or one of our leaders who would love to talk further about that. Church, when you're ready, come and partake of the elements that are set out before you. And let's thank God that he has called us not to, to fear not and to trust in him. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.